So have you ever found yourself in an awkward conversation? I mean, just one of those conversations that's just uncomfortable, you don't know how to feel or how to act or what to think. Well, John Boy and and Jim Bob, they got together and they decided to start their own business and it was going to be a food truck business. And they wanted to start a healthy food truck. So they named their food truck Winter Winter Tofu Dinner. And boy, they were all excited, man. New business together. They're just going to jump into this thing with all they have. One day, John Boy said to Jim Bob, look, man, don't take this personally. But your honey barbecue tofu tips, man, they're, they're just too dry, right? And, and you need to quit being so sensitive when people bring them back up to the counter and, and say that, that they're too dry. You need, to, you need to quit being so sensitive. Jim Bob says, wait a minute, let me get this right. So you're telling me not to take that personally. <laughs> you are in this moment challenging my channeling of cuisine. You are questioning the dexterity of my cooking skills. But you're telling me not to take it personally. John Boy said, yeah, I'm telling you not to take it personally. It's all right. I'm just, I'm just telling you don't take it personally. Well, you are correcting me and you correcting my cooking skills. For the sake of Pete, how am I supposed to take this? John Boy said, see, right there, you're too sensitive. Man, you just need to back off. We've been in conversations like that before, right? And and let me just give you a relationship tip. If you begin a sentence with, don't take this personally, okay, guess what? The other person is going to take it personally, right? That's, that's how that works. Now, truth is, we, we do need to work hard at making sure that we don't take too many things personally, okay? We don't need to go overboard and take every little thing that comes our way personally. There's a lot of tips out there for how to not do that. All kind of stuff out there on the old worldwide interweb, so I just picked one of them. And it goes like this. Will you care about it a year from now? Executive coach Tom Henschel said this. One of the reasons that we all take things personally is because we lose perspective. While personal attacks hurt, most of them simply don't have the same raw feeling weeks and months later. A question you should ask is this. Will I still care about this a year from now? If yes... It's likely worth your concern. If not, and more often this will be the case, it helps you get beyond the emotion of the moment. And he says this, asking the question doesn't make it easy, just easier to move on more quickly. Now that's some good advice right there, you know, because sometimes we do take things personally and we just need to stop and go, you know what, am I really going to care about this in a year? Is this going to matter in a year, and sometimes we just need to let it go. Other times, though, that same advice is helpful because if we think we're going to take it personal a year from now, if we're we're still going to care a year from now, then we might need to truly take it personal and actually do something with it. We begin a new series of messages this morning based on a letter written from one friend to another friend, and really expanding to other friends. It's a simple letter. It's got a simple message to it. And it's a simple letter and a simple message that you and I need to take personally. We need to take this personally. In fact, how we respond to this letter in the Bible, 
it, it kind of indicates what we really think about our family and our friends and our neighbors and our fellow church members and just about anybody we know. In fact, what we do with this letter actually reflects a little bit on what we really think about God. So, this letter seems to have something for us. What does it have for us? Well, let's find out. Listen to the letter to Philemon, beginning with verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. This letter is kind of like a, a modern email where you CC people, you, know, you carbon copy people. It means that this is a letter that's going to one person, but there's other people who either need to be influenced or who are going to be influenced by this one letter. Go back to John Boy and Jim Bob. If John Boy decides that he wants to branch out on his own, and he and his wife Betty Sue, man, they're going to start their own food truck. They're going to do their own thing. So he's probably going to say something to Jim Bob about it, but, but then he's probably going to send an email out to Jim Bob and other folks. Well, what other folks? Well, maybe Grandpa Joe and, and Granny Lou, they, they gave some money at the very beginning for the first food truck, and, and maybe their investment is still connected there. Maybe the boys had them a, a food truck agent, you know, that, that got them set up with fairs and carnivals from time to time. Maybe they had a, a contract with Tofu Tony's food distributorship, and, and they have all these things that are connected to this one food truck. And so John Boy and, and Betty Sue might send an email from them, but it's going to go out to other people because other people are affected by whatever happens to the winner winner tofu dinner truck. See, other people are connected. So we're going to unpack all the characters in this letter because all of these characters matter. And the content of this letter we're going to unpack as well because the content of this letter matters to your life. What you do influences and impacts other people. And what you don't do influences and impacts other people. So we take it all in and we unpack it all and we go, okay, God, what, is, what does this have to do with me? And the first two people in our letter, our first characters are Paul and Timothy. Now, Paul's the author of this letter, but he adds Timothy in. Now, why? Well, we don't know for sure, but more than likely, it's because Paul's kind of building up and connecting Timothy because there's going to be a handoff at some point in time. Timothy's responsibilities are, are growing in the ministry. Many of us can remember that, that season where all of a sudden Franklin Graham started showing up more with Billy Graham and, and these public moments, this, this picture, practical picture of, of maybe the, the future transition that was going to be happening with the ministry. Or maybe to use sports terms, maybe Timothy would be called the coach-in-waiting. You know, he, he's part of this. He's in this system. And so Paul adds him to the mix here. And this transition might be happening sooner than later because if you notice, Paul refers to himself, what, as a prisoner. This wasn't just fancy language that he's throwing in there. Paul was actually a prisoner. He was either under some kind of severe house arrest or maybe he actually was in shackles and chains, but, but he was a prisoner. And why was he a prisoner? Well, he was a prisoner because of the gospel. See, this morning we are sitting in a, in a comfortable place and we're listening to songs about God and we're listening to preaching and listening to prayers. We're having a, a time of fellowship and, and it's very comfortable and it's very safe. But Paul 
did those same things and got arrested. It was the gospel that actually created his imprisonment. Paul would go from city to city and country to country, and he would boldly make much of Jesus, no matter the cost to himself. And don't miss this reference that Paul uses. He says, of Christ. So, yes, Paul might have been a prisoner in Rome, and he might be a prisoner under Roman government authority, but he wants to make it very clear that he is first a prisoner of Christ. This is a huge point of of personal preference here. See, Paul wants to make something very clear. See, the, the Roman government, they may have thought that they were holding Paul, but the reality is Paul wanted us to know, and he wanted everyone else to know who was going to hear and see and read this letter. He wanted them to know that the only one who had whole and had sway and had authority and had devotion over his life was the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a prisoner of Christ. So if you're a believer, could you say the same? Is your first and greatest devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ or Are there some other people, some other places, some other things that seem to get your best energy and your best love and your best allegiance and your best devotion? Paul made it clear his first and primary devotion was to Jesus. The religious people of the day, they hated Paul for preaching the gospel. The Roman government, they arrested Paul for preaching the gospel. And what did Paul do? He just kept preaching the gospel. Why? Why would he do this knowing that he would be in trouble, knowing that he would be hated? This is why. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us. Paul was, Paul was overwhelmed. He would think constantly about the reality that Jesus of Nazareth, the son of the one true God, that that Jesus was truly and practically and historically and innocently charged. He was violently tortured. He was brutally executed, all to take on the penalty of the sin of the world. And Paul knew, my sin too. And he was overwhelmed with this. He couldn't think about the fact that Jesus would substitute and sacrifice himself for his sin. Paul couldn't just listen to that and think about that and just smile with joy over that sacrifice. He he couldn't just sing with joy over that sacrifice. He, He couldn't just tithe in a way to honor that sacrifice. No, Paul knew Jesus died for him. He knew that Jesus had paid it all. He knew that there was a crimson stain that marked his heart and his mind and his soul. But Jesus had washed all of that away. And because that was true, Paul was compelled by the love of Christ. He was constrained by the love of Christ. He was controlled by the love of Christ. And he loved it. See, we hear that word, don't you control me? Hey, buddy, you don't control me. Hey, lady, you don't control me. 
But all when we gaze upon the cross, we say, yes, Jesus, control me. Because your love is too great and too grand, I can't comprehend it that you, the innocent Son of God, would give yourself for me. Paul was controlled by it. He loved being controlled by it, so much so he didn't mind going to prison because the love of Christ was that addictive. It was that amazing. It was that astounding. Here's where all of that matters. This letter is written for a reason. Paul's going to ask a friend to do something difficult. He's going to ask a friend to do something that really goes against everything he learned from his parents and his grandparents, everything he learned from his friends and his teachers and and just about anybody else that he ever knew. Paul's going to ask his friend to do something that nobody else in his city would do. In fact, nobody else in his country would probably do at all. He's asking him to go against the crane of everything that was normal in culture, normal in society. If you were going to ask a friend to to go against culture like that, to go against society, to to go against what their, their normal response would be, how do you think you might go about asking them? Do you think you might say, I am the great and powerful Apostle Paul, and you should be grateful that I'm writing you this personal letter, and you should obey anything that I command you to do. Would you you begin that way? Or maybe you might begin like this, um, according to uh, Article 1, Section 3 of the Colossae Baptist Church Bylaws, you are required to obey anything that a founding charter member tells you to do, and I am the founding father of the church, so you must do exactly what I tell you to do. Would that be a good way to start that letter off? (laughs) Or maybe you begin it this way. Listen, I want to ask you to do something. I'm not asking you as your pastor or some kind of parent or some kind of boss or some kind of elected church official. In fact, I really wish I could come see you. I mean, I wish I could be right there with you and we could have this conversation face to face, but, but you know my situation. You know about my imprisonment for the gospel, so I... I'm not free to come to you, and I'm, I'm not going to use scare tactics, and I'm not going to give you a guilt trip. I, I'm just going to ask you to do something. That's how Paul begins. And what's he going to ask his friend to do? He's going to ask him to forgive somebody, and, and not just anybody. He's going to ask him to forgive someone that has practically, socially, and financially harmed him. He's going to ask him to forgive somebody that did him wrong, like really, really wrong. And not just him, but even other people in his life. Paul's going to begin this difficult request with a very simple greeting. He's going to say, hey, this is, this is a letter coming from me and Timothy. A couple of pastors, a couple of missionaries, we're sending this letter to you. And who is the letter sent to? Listen to the next part of verse 1. To Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker. 
This is a personal letter to a friend in a place called Colossae, and that friend's name is Philemon. The Colossian church was not like this one big, huge building downtown Colossae with a big steeple. The Colossian church was more like a a lot of house churches, so to speak, and they all kind of had some kind of common leadership. It's believed that Paul never went to Colossae. He was in Ephesus, which is about 130 miles away, so maybe when he was ministering there, maybe Philemon made the trip over there, and, and maybe that's where he met Paul. But somehow, Philemon and Paul met. Somehow, Paul was intricate in leading Philemon to salvation. And so there's a relationship there, a very legitimate relationship. Paul refers to him as a beloved brother and fellow worker, meaning that he was more than just some guy in the church. He was probably an elder or some kind of volunteer leader in the church there in Colossae. As the letter unfolds, we pick up on some other things from Philemon like you know, maybe he was one of the wealthier guys there in town. He had a lot of employees, had a lot of slaves that worked for him. He had a house big enough that the church could come and worship and gather and fellowship there. So, so we see some things about Philemon. We don't know a lot of things about him, but we see some pictures here. And so Paul's writing a letter to Philemon, but he's not writing it just to Philemon. There's other people that he wants to have influenced. Listen to verse 2. To Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Apphia, our sister. Who's Apphia? Maybe Philemon's wife. Possible. Again, we don't know for sure. But even if it's not his wife, we know that she has some standing, right? Two of my best friends, their wives are two of the most discerning people I've ever known in my life. So over the years, when I've had big questions and big issues, I've always tried to find a way to get those questions to them to get their two cents because God's given them a lot of discernment and major big decisions. So it could have been the the wife, or it could have just been a lady in the church, but, but what we do know about her is that undoubtedly her first and primary devotion was to Jesus. Undoubtedly she was someone who desired to be a humble, honest helper to the church, and we know these things simply because Paul includes her. If Paul didn't trust her, he, he wouldn't put her name in here. And so Aphia is someone that needs to be influenced by this message because she's going to have an influence in the life of the church and in the community. So Paul addresses Philemon and Aphia, and then he adds one more person by name, verse 2, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier. Who's Archippus? Maybe Philemon's son. I don't know for sure, Maybe. Either way, he's, he's somebody that Paul wants to hear this message. You know, Philemon was, was some kind of leader in the church, but if you notice, Paul says that Archippus is a fellow soldier. That's not a fellow worker, that's a fellow soldier. So Archippus had to do more than just kind of hang out and do things in his home church. Maybe he was some kind of missionary or some kind of traveling preacher. He was, he was working outside of just that one place. He was making sure the gospel got beyond his house and got beyond his house church. He might have been the kind of guy that, like Paul, might get arrested every now and then for preaching the gospel in different places. And so Paul wants the attention of Philemon, he wants Apphia's attention, and he wants Archippus' attention. But, but then he has one more greeting that he gives. And to the church in your house. It's interesting because this is a letter to one person, but remember we're carbon copying this thing. This is a CC There's there's more people that are going to be involved. 
And so the very nature of this letter is it needs to get out to more than just one person and more than just three people. It really needs to get out behind the whole church. Why? Again, the ultimate purpose of this letter is Paul's asking a friend to do something very difficult. He's asking him to forgive someone who's wronged him. So I just want to stop just for a second to really invite you into this. My guess is all of us have at least one person that maybe we haven't completely forgiven. So this letter is not just some ancient letter to Philemon. It's a letter to you. And so Paul made sure that this got to the whole church because he's asking someone to do something difficult, to forgive someone who has wronged them and harmed them. And that's not just a message for one person, is it? That's a message for all of us. That's a message that will influence all of us. Paul's going to plead with Philemon, but he knows that Apphia and Archippus and the whole church, they're, they're going to hear this plea and they need to be influenced by this plea. Again, just simple stuff. When you forgive someone in some way, shape, or form, every single person in your life is impacted. And likewise, when you refuse to forgive someone, every single person in your life in some way, shape, or form is impacted. So just own that for your family right now. Own that for what's happening at work or school or with some of your friends. Own that for somebody you don't even know. You're just offended by something that they've done. Our lack of forgiveness impacts every area of our life and impacts the people of our lives. So Paul's writing. He wants the whole church to get this. He he doesn't just want this to go to one person. He knows this thing needs to spread out. He knows that that more than one person needs to be influenced because he knew there was more than one person that probably needed to forgive somebody. And maybe all those people needed to forgive this one person, which in some ways they did. And we're going to find out who that person is as, as we walk through this. But what's the only thing that will motivate you and move you and make you forgive someone? Repeat that question. What's the only thing that will motivate you, move you, and make you forgive someone. Listen to what Paul says next in his greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I scribbled something in my notes this week uh, when I read this passage, something like three keys that Paul gives to forgiveness just in this greeting. Y'all know I'm, I'm not a three person or a, was it alliteration where everything begins with the same letter? I stink at all that stuff. Um, but but I, I kind of see three things here, you know, grace, peace, and community. You know, grace, peace, and community seem to be three things, at least in this greeting, that Paul's saying we need to have forgiveness. Now, the community part we understand, right? I mean, we see that already. Paul's writing this letter to a bunch of different people. He's wanting a bunch of different people to to know about forgiveness. He's reminding them, hey, your forgiveness impacts everybody. So the community part we get, but what about the grace part? And what about the peace part? Well, by definition, grace is free, unmerited, undeserved, unwanted favor from God. 
At this moment, as you sit in this room, you are receiving the grace of God. You're receiving the the common grace of God just because you're breathing and because you're alive. When you woke up this morning, you didn't necessarily want it, ask for it, demand it, deserve it, but you got it because God is a God, the God of pure and perfect grace. But common grace is not really what Peter's, what Paul's talking about here. He's given a a whole nother picture of grace. And what kind of grace is he talking about? He's talking about the grace of salvation. Romans chapter 8 verse 7 says this, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. See, one of the reasons that we look at our salvation, we go, oh, I've received this amazing grace. The reason we receive it is because we don't deserve it. And why do we not deserve it? We don't deserve it because before we're a follower of Jesus, we're hostile toward God. That sounds like strong language, right? Listen, you can be a good, fine, moral, upstanding citizen, serve on a ministry committee at the church, and be hostile toward God. How? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Well, see, we think about things being said on the flesh like practical, physical immorality. And that is part of it, definitely. But you can also be hostile to God because of how you think, right? You can be hostile toward God because your way and God's way don't match up. And so you pursue your way. You, you do your way of making decisions and you do your way of handling everything in life because you don't prefer God's way. Listen, I know a lot of pastors and a lot of church members that are hostile to God. And here's why. Because it's their way or the highway. And oh yeah, they will make it sound like their way is God's way. But you know what? Even a child knows the difference between godliness and arrogant stubbornness. Even a child can see that. So this hostility of mind, this hostility of heart, that's who we are before we're a believer, before we're a follower of Jesus Christ. So what changes that? How does this hostile mind and hostile heart, how can that possibly change? Grace. That's what grace does. Listen again to this picture that Paul gives. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And you were, before Christ, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Dead in sin. And then verse 12, he says this, You were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is a picture of who we are before Christ. Even if we grow up in church, this is a picture of who we are. Separated, hostile, dead in our sins. And what changes that? Grace. Grace changes that. Before a person repents and turns to Christ, their their nature, their hearts, and their minds, they're hostile strangers to God. All right. Have you ever heard the concept of a hostile stranger? How about put it this way? Have you ever seen someone that you thought was a hostile stranger and went, they're so lovely. Oh, I just, they're so lovely. That hostile stranger, so lovely. You say that? No, not usually. Jerry Bridges says this. 
Grace is the love of God shown to the unlovely. It's beautiful. Grace is the love of God shown to the unlovely. I was a good church-going kid at First Baptist, but I was hostile to God. How? Why? Because I had not surrendered to Jesus. Jesus was not my greatest treasure. But in a moment, in one moment, as I was walking down Oak Avenue, the grace of God captured my heart, stirred me to repentance. And something changed that day. And something changed in that moment. What? Peace. I remember it like it happened five minutes ago. Peace. So that's what grace does. Grace immediately brings this peace that passes our understanding. One theologian put it this way. The beginning of peace is when God receives us into his favor. Peace begins when grace happens. There's no peace until that grace captures us, that that free, unmerited, undeserved, unwanted favor of God. When it captures our heart, peace is right there behind it. And when we receive this grace of God, when we find ourselves in the grace of God, we are no longer hostile, unlovely strangers. No, everything changes. We become honored, dearly prized, deeply loved children of God. That's what grace does. The grace of God brings peace into our minds and our hearts and our souls. And then that peace keeps talking to ourselves over and over. Hey, don't forget that grace. Don't forget the grace you've received. Hang on to that. And grace and peace and grace and peace, they're always at work. And how does that grace and peace happen? Because Jesus loved you and gave himself up for you. That's that's it. That's the only math we have. The way that your heart can have a feeling of peace because of the grace of God that comes through Jesus is because Jesus loved you and gave himself up for you. This is what Paul says in the greeting. We even got to the content of the letter. In the greeting, Paul says, grace, grace, grace. Why? Because if the grace of God has not found your heart, then you will not forgive people because you don't know what it means to be forgiven. I love how Alexander McLaren kind of unpacks that thought. He writes, The life of nature, which is a selfish life, flings us into unfriendly rivalries with others. Got any rivalries right now? Got any rivalries in your family? Got any rivalries at work or with friends, with your neighbor? Y'all fighting over yard of the month or something, you know? You got a rivalry? The life of nature flings us into unfriendly rivalries with others and sets us battling for our own hands. 
And it is hard to pass out of ourselves sufficiently to live peaceably with all men. But the grace of God in our hearts drives out self and changes the man who truly has it into its own likeness. We become more like grace. And then he says this, He who knows that he owes everything to a divine love which stooped to his lowliness and pardoned his sins and enriched him with all which he has that is worthy and noble, the person that knows that cannot but move among men, doing with them in his poor fashion what God has done with him. So, friend, what has God done with you? Have you received the grace of God? Have have you been captured by the grace of God? Has the peace that passes all understanding come down into your heart and mind where you are convinced that the one true God of the universe stooped and pardoned your sin and forgave your trespasses and rescued you and ushered you into his kingdom? If so, then there is no way that you cannot move towards your spouse and your kids and your parents and your friends and your family and complete strangers every now and then and elected officials and non-elected officials and church staff and pastors and anybody else in your life. There's no way if grace has found you that you don't move toward others with that same grace. Now, here's the thing, though. We do, right? (laughs) Like, we fail to do that. But we need to hear this. (laughs) Because what it reminds us of is this. If I'm not doing that, man, I am not functioning as someone who's received grace. I need to be moving different. I need to be moving toward other people different. You're going to hear this quote, or at least a form of this quote, uh, several different ways uh, in the weeks to come. It's from John MacArthur, and it goes like this. We could say that God is never more like himself than when he forgives. If God is never more like himself than when he forgives, man is never more like God than when he forgives. Never more like God than when we forgive. And you know, I would dare say the opposite is also true, right? That the less we are willing to forgive, the more we refuse to forgive, the less like God we really are. So we began with this question, title of the sermon. When do you forgive? When do you forgive? You forgive when the grace of God through Jesus Christ has captured your heart and made things right, brought peace between you and God. That's when you forgive. And if that math is hard, that means all the time. If we've received the grace of God, if Jesus has made peace between us and God, then the calling of our lives when it comes to when do we forgive, 
It's all the time. Now, that's always super easy to do, right? No. And we're always going to immediately forgive people right in that moment, right? Probably not. We're sinful enough. But you know what? If we don't have this standard in our mind, if we don't have this bearing in our mind, how in the world can we keep professing to be Christians? If we don't even have it in our minds, oh, grace changes how I speak and how I act because I have peace with God. So I want to give you just one thought. And and I want to challenge you with this thought. As soon as I say amen after the closing song, okay, so that means that like service is over, you're going to go up and talk to somebody. You're going to approach somebody right after church, okay? I want this statement that I'm going to give in just a moment to drive that conversation, okay? The rest of this week at home, at work, at school, wherever you are, I'm just going to give you one statement. I would love for that statement to drive how you deal with other people this week, okay? So right after service, during the closing song, right after church, in the restaurant, um, at the doctor, at the hospital, at work, at school, wherever we are this week, just one statement to kind of drive your life this week. And here's that statement. Grace to you. Grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you.